women like to go into everything, and I know I'm generalizing here, but go into things prepared. It's why we have the diaper bag packed. It's why we have Hot Wheels in our purse. It's why we have wipes and Kleenex and everything you could possibly imagine in the car, just in case. Whereas, you know, the dad throws the, the baby in the back and goes, yeah, get in the car seat yourself. <laughs> but we think of everything that can go wrong and it stops us from doing so much. Again, it's not brain surgery. Just go do it. Try it. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. Today's episode has an interesting backstory to it. The notion that's become this podcast started as an idea for another book, but I just couldn't get traction on what kind of book it needed to be. I couldn't even get started on shaping it, to be honest. Eventually, a friend suggested that I consider turning it into a podcast instead. This was an intriguing idea to me, except for one small detail. I had no clue what that meant in practical terms. I did know exactly where to turn next, though. To my friend Dana Steele, Grammy-winning DJ, author, and podcaster extraordinaire. If you haven't listened to her Rockstar Principles podcast, you should hop over there right after listening to this episode. Dana gave me a bunch of essential tips and pointers, recommended good audio gear to buy, and introduced me to Podcast Network Solutions, who are now my producers as well. She countered every one of my worries or bits of hesitation with, girl, you just got to get that the heck out of your head. Of course, those of you who know Dana will know right away that her language was a touch saltier than that, but you get the point. Finally, she offered to be my guinea pig to be my first guest and let me practice my interview skills on her. Let me tell you, doing a first podcast interview with a pro like Dana Steele, that's like having the world's most perfect training wheels on your bike. You're gonna be just fine. I've still hesitated to air the interview with her though, because it would bear my very novice skills and probably embarrass me a bit. But at the end I concluded, Dana is just too fascinating a person with too many fabulous insights to hold back and not share her with you, my audience. So here we go. Join me now with the delightful and incomparable Dana Steele. So Ms. Dana, longtime friend, but man, uh, first lady of rock and roll, you have all these super cool titles and astonishing group of friends. I, I never cease to be dazzled by you. <laughs> yeah, but see, you're one of those amazing friends. It's so cool. Yeah. All of my rock friends are much more impressed with my astronaut friends than they are my rock friends. So. Yeah, well, it's it's probably, you know, each of us reflecting on the skills we're not sure we have within us, right? And admiring the others. But I mean, you and I have known each other for a long time, but we've never really had a really good sit down talk about life as it has unfolded. And that's what I'd love to hear a little more about from you today. Ask away. I'm an open book. As I tell people, I pose, you know, nude and pregnant for the cover of a magazine. <laughs> I have no secrets. Clearly, <laughs> clearly. So you are known as the first lady of rock and roll, at least in uh, the Houston radio world. And you started your radio career, if I have the story right, on a dare. Tell on a dare at Texas A&M. I went to, to college 
I was 16 when I backed out of the driveway and that first week on campus for freshman orientation, I turned 17, but you know, who knows what they want to do at that age. So I was pretty much changing my living arrangements and my major every couple of months. And I met this guy at a party. Oh, he was, oh, he was so cute. He was a DJ at the big top 40 station in Bryan, Texas. And he was making fun of the new student radio station that they had just announced at Texas A&M. And I auditioned for it thinking it would impress him and I would get a date. I never got a date, but I got the job. And the minute I put on those headphones, I just, you know, I was, I was tiny. I was bullied. I was a geek. Uh, I was thrown into the, the group of mean girls because our parents all worked together. And so they tolerated me. And I could be anybody I wanted in that room because all you could do was hear my voice. And I sounded older and I sounded sexier and I sounded cool. And I, I, I was all these things that I wasn't. I was talking about this with my middle son the other day and I, I didn't realize he had never heard the story, but I was probably 50 before I stopped worrying about imposter syndrome where you know somebody's gonna walk up to you and go, wait a minute, you're not the cool Dana Steele. You're geeky Dana Nicholson. You're that weird girl who liked math and you know went to college early. But anyway, I guess that's why I loved it. And I was so confused as to what I wanted to be when I grew up. I heard a radio station in Houston advertising for a sales secretary, you know, an admin position. And I thought, well, that'll at least get my foot in the door. I can come back home. My parents were extremely understanding. They were like, you know what? You're getting ready to turn 18. You can always go back to college. We were worried you went so soon to begin with. Um, so I came back and took this job. And um, it was the first time I learned to always speak up for what you want, always verbalize what job you want, where you want to be, who you want to meet, what you want to do, because you never know who's listening. And after three weeks, I went into the program director's office at this big powerhouse rock station and told him that I actually had a license because you had to have a license back then. And I told him I was licensed and I had experience and I maybe told a little white lie to get my foot in the door. And he basically laughed at me and threw me out of his office. And that night, the midnight to six DJ didn't show up. And the program director and the other guys were too high to go on the air. And so they, and they knew I lived with a roommate a couple of blocks away. So they called and woke me up and said, great, I'm gonna be on the air, get on the air. And he didn't show up again the next night. And they ended up firing him. They promoted the weekend guy overnight and gave me the weekend guy's shift. So Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I would come in at 1130 at night, work till six in the morning. And then on Mondays, I had to be back at eight to do my admin job. I guess I did that for about two or three months. And I mean, I, I was always there. I was filing records. I was making coffee. I was cleaning the kitchen, whatever. And then they changed the format to disco and everybody either got fired or quit. And all of a sudden I was a full-time DJ. And I, I so I, I, I appreciate disco for that, but I hate disco. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, there's a debt of gratitude there though. That, so tell me a little more about who the young Dana was before this, because, you know, stepping off to college at 16 is a, it's one of those pretty big moments. Going to college is a step out moment for everybody, but more about the Dana in Houston, Texas, Dana Nicholson growing up. And I and was really fortunate that my dad was an entrepreneur and a dreamer. He would bring, my Barbies played office. My dad would bring me home fresh bottles of whiteout, which I still love. And he'd bring me home letterhead. You know, this is at five. I thought this was, I just loved the thought of being a career woman. I don't know what career, but, and then my mom was the nurturer. Everybody was always at our house for dinner or drinks or hanging out or watching TV. And when I got older, anytime anybody ran away, they ran away to our house, which was really screwed when you were a teenager because it couldn't, you couldn't run away to anyone else's because everyone was at your house, you know, but she was the one never met a stranger. And I just really got the best of both of them. My, um, my dad was horrible with money. My mother was great with money. Fortunately, I got that, you know, from them as well. 
I loved school. I loved reading. I loved Mrs. Griswold in the second grade. I love the internet because I've been able to go back over the years and, you know, find Claudia, the, the housekeeper that pretty much raised me as a kid. In fact, I just took her to get her vaccines. Uh, we hadn't seen each other in 40 years. And I tracked her down and said, do you need a vaccine? And uh, so we've had great fun. I've tracked down Mrs. Griswold from the second grade. I uh, you know, tracked down my best friend, Lisa Waymeyer from elementary school. But I loved math. I loved reading. I loved school. But in high school, I, I just, I couldn't get out of there fast enough. I wanted to be out in the world making my way. And, you know, that, that first summer after my freshman year of high school, a friend of mine and I decided we, I, I love math, but I hate geometry, hate it. And I didn't want to sit through a whole semester of geometry. And we learned they were offering geometry in summer school for all the kids who had flunked it but we could take it and get the credit and only have to take geometry for six weeks. And it was kind of unique. No one had ever asked to do that. So the school let us do it. And then Mike and I did it again the next summer for a history course. In the meantime, he and I both figured out there was no rule against us taking correspondence courses, which they were offered through the mail at Texas Tech. Uh, it's now, they, they're still around as a matter of fact, it's online school. So before the school knew it, at 16, Mike and I both had enough credits to graduate and no one had ever done this and they couldn't find a way to get her. They tried to get us to stay for our senior year and take like office aid. I'm like, no, I want, and, and I'm, I'm a third generation Aggie. So I grew up in college station. I, I was probably conceived at a, you know, Thanksgiving day game. I grew up with maroon blood. So it didn't feel that foreign going off to Texas A&M and being around the core and being around all the, uh, probably the traditions and everything I had grown up with, it was family and it was comforting. And then I proceeded to go from straight A's to straight D's, got a boyfriend in a band and had a really good time in college <laughs> with, with my fake ID and my driver's license. And oh, that was the other thing. I got my driver's license when I was 15, a year early. The Fort Bend County Protective Services for Kids, whatever they were called back then, knew how good I was at math and wanted me to come and tutor some of the kids that they were fostering or whatever. So they pretty much offered to give me a driver's license. I would have to sit, remember when the phone book was really like two, three inches thick, I would have to sit on a phone book and then put a pillow on top of that so I could see over the dashboard of the fake panel station wagon. And then I would hang my arm out so I would look cool, but I'm, you know, I'm little. So I'd have to roll the window up a little bit so that I could rest my elbow so that I looked cool hanging out in the fake wood panel station wagon. Everyone. But I was in a hurry. That's, that's, that's the long version. The short version is I was in a hurry. I wanted to get in the world. That shows up so clearly through you to, to this day, all, all the energy that you bring to everything you've ever done. So the idea for this podcast series, as we've talked about, came from the notion of stepping out of things. And people here, I've stepped out of a spaceship. Something I've never heard someone say when they learned that was, oh yeah, I did something like that too. <laughs> well, I do have a question and I know you're interviewing me. So can I no, ask my go. question real yeah, quick? Yeah, ask my question. So I know all the training you guys do. I've been privy to some of it, officially and unofficially, when some fans invited me to NASA to go through you know, some of your training. And it's all so well done. What were some of the first things that went through your mind when the door opened, the hatch opened, and you looked out into the void of space? What were some of your first thoughts? Yeah, so as good as the training is, there are a couple of things that they, they have not canned, and they can't train you perfectly for them. And if they ever figure out how to do that, I'm going to rip up the recipe, because these are the things you, you don't want to be completely prepared for these things. And one is the view of Earth the first time you see it, which truly will pull the breath right out of you. Uh, and the other is how fun it is to play and work in zero gravity. So, you know, when you're finally suited up to go outside the big spaceship, you know, you're going to become a spaceship of your own, right? That's what a spacesuit is. It's your very own single pilot body-shaped spaceship. You were talking about this with A&M. Being in that suit, what it feels like, what it sounds like, how to move in it has become as close to second nature as you can get. So you feel very comfortable. And as we were very excited and focused on the work that's gonna get done outside, cause it's cool to get to go outside and, and work outside the spaceship. 
I mean, that's really where my head was at the time. And the famous family story about that is that my dad was in mission control to watch the spacewalk. You know, he's behind the glass in the viewer gallery. And the doctor, the flight surgeon who's monitoring our heart rate, recognizes him and moves aside the little screen that was set so that other people couldn't watch astronaut heartbeats randomly. So my father's now watching my heartbeat trace as we're going to go out the door. And he would tease me ever after that when they finally gave us the go and we opened the hatch, my heart rate spiked to 78 before settling back to 61. It was ready to go. I'm so just so glad nothing cropped up that prevented us from getting outside and getting to go do this amazing thing. I just always wanted to hear an astronaut. I think I hear it more so with SpaceX because everybody's a little looser with the, yeah. not looser with, I mean, safety and everything, but everybody seems to be enjoying it more. They're screaming and mission control at JBL or whatever. But I just always wanted somebody to just go, that is so freaking amazing. <laughs> and y'all are also, that's nominal. I'm like, nominal is not a good word in the rest of the world. Yeah, I, I think the friggin' amazing wahoo goes through your mind, but yeah. Yeah, but none of you verbalized it. I mean, oh, you know, I love the F word, and I mean, <laughs> I, I would have just been letting it fly, because that would have been amazing. Yeah, well, back in those days at NASA, that would have been what you did only if you never wanted to fly in space again. I know. I made NASA very nervous when I started dating <laughs> Wonder Husband. <laughs> So I, I want to come back to what you said about imposter syndrome, because I think that's one of the hardest things for, for everyone, I suspect male and female, but especially women to step out of. Marry that up with your comment about how early on you realized you needed to say what you want. Those two things, as I've gone through my own life, I think I was past 50 before I started getting over imposter syndrome. And as I've watched young women around me, those seem to be key hang-up points that are sticky and, and hard to move beyond. What were your signs? How did you feel the, the imposter falling away? Yeah, the more you do, the more you just keep putting yourself out there, as scary as it is, the more you walk out on stage in front of 2,000 people and you get that first laugh and you go, okay, I can do this. Uh, or you get that first bit of applause or you have a success at work or you know, you just put yourself out there as, as you watch other people start to believe in you. I think it helps you start to believe in yourself. But it took a really, really long time. And, and I think a part of it is because there were so few women for me to look up to in the industry. But I knew, you know, I just... There was, there was nobody that went before me. There was very few that went before me. There were very few that went before you. There were very few that went before Melissa Etheridge. And I mean, and I was a pioneer in that early on. I fought for more airplay for Melissa Etheridge and Pat Benatar and Joan Jett and even Hart because they would say, oh, we can only play one female artist an hour. I'm like, Amazing. what? What? It's like, oh yeah, I never, ever play two women back to back. That's just, they're still doing that in country music. I'm like, what? And I was usually the only woman at the radio station. What's really unusual is that, you know, I mentioned Claudia earlier. Claudia was a black woman who lost her husband early on. And I was so, I, re I remember at a young age being privy to conversations I shouldn't have heard. Her husband was shot and killed in a bad neighborhood in Houston. But I remember thinking, wow, you can be a strong woman and go on after something like that. And then the first woman that hired me at Texas A&M was a black woman. And then the woman that hired me at my dream job at KLOL was a black woman. Uh, she recently passed away. Jackie McCauley was one of the most iconic program directors of KLOL. I mean, first of all, a woman programming rock radio and a black woman in the South. Pro but I didn't even think about it because she was just such a icon to me and she was one of those people that I interviewed four times I want to work at KLOL I want to work at the station I grew up listening to I want to work with the the DJs that I grew up listening to and that's how I got that job was because they had to fire somebody and they knew I was available and they needed a woman and you know there hire her but I think you just have to as the guys say you have to grow a pair and you just have to step out no matter how much your heart rate spikes, no matter 
And what the more you step out, the more you realize it's not brain surgery. If it is, you probably don't need to be talking to us. You need to be, go do a brain surgery. <laughs> Nobody's going <laughs> to die. Nobody's going to die if you forget a line. Nobody's going to die if you do a misspelling in that presentation. Whatever. Just do it. And the more you put yourself out there, I mean, I still shake when I go on stage. I'm a nervous ball of energy. And I remember reading once, if you're not, you don't care anymore. So that really helped me too, knowing that that fear was from how much I cared about doing a job well and entertaining people or sounding smart or, I mean, look at the space store. I created the first NASA online store, which thank you all very much for shopping in my basement. I didn't know what I was doing, and but nobody else was doing it. And I bought HTML for dummies. And I don't even know how I found this banker in Cleveland, Ohio, who was moonlight, moonlighting as a programmer at night and on the weekends. And he helped me build the, the shopping cart because you couldn't just go open a Yahoo store or anything back then. I would draw him pictures and I guess fax them to him. I must have faxed them. I'd draw him pictures and go, I want it to look like this. And, and I kept waiting for somebody to go, oh, you can't do that. And nobody did. So I love the concept of this podcast because that is what it is. It's stepping out into the unknown. It's stepping out into the void. Even if somebody has gone before you, it's still going to be different for you. So just step out and, and, and ask questions and let, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Ask people, find mentors. I really, 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 once I decided I loved radio, I really wanted to work at KLOL. I just, that was going to be the ultimate for me. And I found out all the top DJs, all guys, all the top DJs at KLOL and a bunch of the other stations in town would get together every Thursday night for the happy hour specials at the Mariner. It's a restaurant and bar on Westheimer at Fountain View. Now, keep in mind, the drinking age is 21. I'm not even legal. But, you know, put on your heels, stand up, put your shoulders back, walk in, pretend like you're supposed to be somewhere, and hopefully nobody will realize you're an imposter and an underage imposter. <laughs> and uh, I got to know, you know, a couple of the, the secretaries, which is what they were called then, would go and join the guys for drinks. And so I chummed up with them and started going with them and got to know all these guys who became lifelong friends and I became their equal. And part of that was their mentorship and their lessons and, and, and just networking, being there, listening, being really quiet, just listening so that you knew when there was an opening or you knew who were the movers and the shakers. But they also were really good about when I did start to make it, telling me to get off my high horse. <laughs> we need friends like that. Yes. You commented about that first moment when you step out on stage and you've been shaking huge nerves and suddenly they fall away. And, you know, I think lots of us have probably had moments like that. I've, I've often thought it's of all these images, everything I've been worried about and rehearsing maybe for days or maybe for weeks as I make a, my fitful march towards some stepping out moment. It's like the moment I reach out to touch it with my finger, it all pops and falls away as if it was never anything more than a soap bubble that I was painting my own imaginary pictures on. Uh, we all have time to build up just everything, especially women. We go through the checklist of everything that can go wrong. You know, we know every bone in the body that our children are going to break. We, we can come up with a list of absolutely everything that's going to go wrong if we leave them alone with their father. I mean, it's just one thing after another. And then none of it happened. I was thinking that out at the other day. You know, I would just get so mad at Charlie, the wonder husband. It's like, oh, my God, that child's going to have a broken leg. And I look back down, you know, they're all three grown adults who basically are, you know, well-adjusted and nobody, nobody borrows money. They're all really good. But as women, we are programmed to think ahead of absolutely everything that can go wrong. And it's not so much, somebody told me once that a lot of women will not run for office because they feel like they need to know more before they do. 
I'm not sure it's that we feel like we need to know more. It's we just go through every single scenario that could happen because we don't know something, because we don't know the difference between two countries, or we don't know what the foreign policy is between Iraq and Iran, or we don't know all of the minutiae of Medicare for all, whatever. Women like to go into everything, and I know I'm generalizing here, but go into things prepared. It's why we have the diaper bag packed. It's why we have Hot Wheels in our purse. It's why we have wipes and Kleenex and everything you could possibly imagine in the car, just in case. Whereas, you know, the dad throws the the baby in the back and goes, yeah, get in the car seat yourself. (laughs) But we think of everything that can go wrong and it stops us from doing so much. Again, it's not brain surgery. Just go do it. Try it. You've been so propelled, as you said, eager to get out in the world and a goodly healthy dose of chutzpah as you made and persistence, not to underestimate and leave out persistence. Has there been any moment in your life, a step out moment in your life that came at you very differently, that had a very different buildup that was more thrust upon you or was more life Running for Congress. Ah, tell me about that. Running for Congress. You know, I ran in in what's considered one of like 15 reddest districts in the country, very rural, very redneck, if we can still say that, uh, very right. And nobody had run before. And my politics very much clashed with the, the congressman, my representative. And it really bothered me, though, that for the second election in a row, nobody was going to run. And really, a couple that had run before that, it was a, it's an area that had been so gerrymandered that a beloved congressman was literally, they redrew the district lines two or three times till they finally gerrymandered him out. He was a big proponent of the space program. Uh, Nick Lampson, great guy. They finally got him out, though, by redrawing the line. So it was a bizarre district, just under 8,000 square miles. But it was the fact that democracy requires participation and I love my country. I'm one of the I cry when I vote. Every time you should have seen me the first time my youngest came out of voting the first time. I was like, you'd think I was hurt. I was just sobbing. I was just so proud of him. But to me, it's just such a luxury we have in this country to protest and to vote and all the things that we have in this country. And we couldn't find anybody that was going to run for office. Nobody nobody it was either it's unwinnable, which we knew going into it, or people were frightened because there's there's a lot of guns, there's a lot of threatening, there's a lot of, if you run, you know, we will ruin your insurance agency or whatever, whatever job you had, you'll be fired, you'll be ostracized from your church, you'll be ostracized from your neighbors. At this point, I've got a pretty thick skin and I'm like, well, whatever, you know, I had people yell at me because I didn't place their way to heaven enough, uh, or Freebird. So when, when, the group of us that were getting together discussing some concerns, some big concerns we had in the country at the time. And then the fact that nobody was going to run and we couldn't find anybody. Then people started saying, well, why not you? I was like, oh, no, 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 no. So I was a very reluctant candidate. No one may have seen that because when I do something, I, my dad always said, never do a half-assed job. Always give 110%. Uh, but I would come home and cry. I would come home and just you know, my family was asleep when I left at six in the morning. My family was asleep at 11 at night when I came home. I was exhausted. People yelled at me all day. But I I promised I would do it. And I promised I would do it to the best of my ability. So I would cry and I would have a glass of wine and I would go to bed. And at six o'clock, I'd be ready the next morning when Tutal picked me up in the pickup truck and gave me my briefing papers. And off we'd go to give speeches and shake hands and kiss babies all day long. And I told everybody I I will do it once. And I encourage everybody to do it at least once so that you know how our country works and you know how our country doesn't work and how politics work and how politics don't work. That was one thing I was definitely thrust into, totally out of my comfort zone. You really don't want to say the F word when you're running for Congress. (laughs) Um, I'm glad I did it. But I have no desire to do it again, but I have a burning desire to teach others how to do it and to encourage others to do it because somebody's going to step out into it and love it. Love it. I did not love it. 
I tried acting for a living. I left radio for less than a year because I always wanted to know what it was like to act for a living. I hated it. It was, it was not my comfort zone. I can't act my way out of a box. I can be Dana. I just can't be anyone else. So when people say, oh, you lost or, oh, you failed in LA, it's like, no, I didn't. I learned lots of lessons, met lots of people. I met some of the coolest people around Texas, including Republicans. I, I spoke to a lot of Republican groups as a Democrat, which people thought was crazy. And it's like, why? You know, I'm not running to be the representative of the Democrats in Texas. I'm running to be the representative of Texans who don't have hospitals and don't have health care and don't have Internet and don't have jobs. So, um, yeah, I was thrust into that and never, never really. People say, oh, you were a natural. Kathy, I wasn't a natural. I was, I was out of my element every day for a year and a half. But I did it. And I'm glad I did it. You know, I was a speaker. My career has never recovered since running for Congress. Because once you do that, people, oh, she's a politician. No, I'm not. <laughs> but yeah, you really become tainted with it right now in this country. But I figure it all happens for a reason. And it means I was meant to do something else or, you know, retire and go play golf or who knows, do a podcast. So, I mean, that clearly stretched you emotionally on countless levels that you could strap yourself back up the next morning after each grueling day for that long a period of time. You had to, because I promised I keep my word. What else do you find has stayed with you or are there other ways that you realize that you know, changed your character or your personality? They're the pragmatic and sort of tangible takeaways from an experience like that of the friends and the contacts. Well, it gave me something that's maybe negative. It made me, there's a sadness that's never left. There's a sadness that we're not doing better for people in this area, that there still are no hospitals. I mean, you have a heart attack in Orange County, you're probably not going to make it to the hospital across the border in Louisiana or over to Beaumont in time for anybody to take care of it. A sadness that people are still in the same circumstances they were in after Hurricane Ike and Hurricane Harvey and floods. So it left me with, it's not a bitterness, it's a sadness that it still hasn't been fixed. And these are good people. These are good people, no matter who they vote for. They're, they're good people who deserve more. But it also gave me a sense of the sheer number of people that are doing things to try to make this world a better place that you never hear about. You hear about the Stacey Abrams and you know the Beto O'Rourke's or whatever, uh, but there are so many good people out there just volunteering and taking care of others. There's a former NASA engineer who felt the calling to do more and he left a great paying job in a great neighborhood, you know, where you and I lived and went to, I guess, what, divinity school, whatever. He's a Methodist minister in one of the poorest areas of Texas and runs a food bank. And he didn't have to do this. He's not from the area. He never lived there. And I just learned so much from this man and his wife. I mean, there's so many selfless people like that. So I have this sadness that everything's not fixed yet, but I also have this great hope that there are still enough good people in the world and the world finds ways to right itself. It just does, you know? And I, I saw so many of these people that maybe I'm not out there doing good every day, but boy, there are some people that are, and they're just amazing. I'll switch gears a little bit and ask you, I know one moment in your life that uh, was not at all one you walked towards it. It crashed into your world and, and was quite a tumultuous time. And, and that's your time seeing your mother through Alzheimer's. Oh, yeah, that was that was horrible. But again, I turned it into something else. I, I wrote a book and people say, oh, don't you think your mother would hate that? Oh, my God, no, my mother wanted to be famous. She would, she would love it, you know. Yeah, it was a very, very hard, hard thing for anyone to go through. And caregivers are the saints of our world. But I mean, when I discovered- shared your anguish so openly on your Facebook page. 
through those couple of years. It was, as your friend, it was sort of wrenching to follow you through that each day. It takes a village though, it does. It's the, it goes back to that, ask for what you want and need, ask questions. And when I realized nobody talks about this, it's the same thing with miscarriage. Oh, what is it? Something crazy, like 50% of all babies are miscarried. It's like, nobody says, oh yeah, that happened. Nobody warns you. So then when it happens, you're like, you're, you, what did I do wrong? Or I'm heartbroken or what could I have done differently? And when I posted on Facebook that mom had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it was really a chicken way out because I, I, had, I had already said it so many times to close friends and relatives. I just couldn't say it again, Kathy. I just, it was, I can't keep talking about this. So I thought I'll just put it on Facebook. Her friends will see it. They'll spread the word. And to wake up the next morning to a thousand comments from people going, you know, my mom, my dad, my grandmother, my grandfather, my aunt, my uncle, my wife, my husband, my neighbor. I'm like, why doesn't anybody talk about this? Well, you know what? I have no filter. It's therapy for me. I can go to a little therapy group of 10 people at the hospital down the street, or I can just talk to the world. So I talked to the world on Facebook. And that's what got me through it, is we all helped each other. You have to ask for help. You have to reach out and the first time I laughed at something weird she did, I thought, what a horrible person I am. I am laughing at my mom who's doing something weird because she has Alzheimer's. And people are like, oh, no, you got to laugh. You've got to laugh. One of my favorite stories somebody told me as an example was she walked in on her grandmother who loved soap operas and she was watching hardcore porn. And she... <laughs> Soap opera of a sort. <laughs> yeah, was mesmerized. And the, the granddaughter was like, I'm not real sure what to do at this point because you don't want to agitate a, an Alzheimer's patient. And it was just kind of like, Grandma, what you watching? And Grandma, you know, kind of looked a little bit more and turned around and went, they have never done this on the young and the restless before. So, <laughs> so I guess it got to a break or something. It was like, you know, Grandma, let's go get an ice cream, something. And she was able to turn it off. But yeah, I mean, you just go, mm -hmm. so you if you don't, laugh you're crying you're crying the the thing that people always ask me what was the worst moment of your mom's alzheimer's my mother was an incredibly talented creative jeweler she strung high end pearls she was an artist and i came in and she was coloring and she was coloring a squirrel in a coloring book this grown woman and she was coloring it blue outside the lines and I tried to hand her a brown crayon and get her to draw inside the lines. And she just got very mad and she went back to drawing the squirrel blue. That was the worst, lowest moment. I left there and sat in the car and cried. And my post that day was F word, F word, F word. I can't do this anymore. And I remember a very prominent at the time, a news anchor in Houston contacted me privately and said, you know, I've been following your journey and I appreciate everything, but you really need to watch your language, <laughs> <laughs> which made me laugh. And I felt much better that afternoon when I sent her an email back that said, thank you so much for your kind words. As a writer, finding the perfect word is nirvana. And there was no more perfect word at that particular moment. F you, Dana. <laughs> yeah, pre pretty spot on. <laughs> So you did capture this experience in a, a really wonderful book, Alzheimer's with Friends. Surviving yeah. Alzheimer's with Friends, Facebook, and a really big glass of wine. There was a lot of wine involved. And it's going to be a play. It's a play called The Woman in the Mirror. It was supposed to debut last November. And so we've in, we instead, during the pandemic, my director and my co-star and I turned it into a 10-episode Zoom table read. It's a table read on, on YouTube you can find on my YouTube channel. And uh, we're going to try again. We're going to try again to debut it at the Match Theater Complex in Houston the first two weeks of November. So we'll see. It's about 90 minutes. And then it's followed with a 30-minute Q&A with me. And then every night it'll be the two people will change out every night with me. It may be a neurologist. It might be another caregiver. It may be somebody who was just recently diagnosed and will actually talk about it. It may be 
a senior living specialist. It may be an attorney because I want people to realize you need all these people and all these questions answered as you get into this journey. So we'll see. We'll see. Like I said, I'm not an actress, but I'm playing myself. So I think I can do that. Uh, I have a great co-star to play off of. It's a love letter performance to caregivers that you're not alone. You can get through this. You can do this. Yeah, it's hard, but here's how you do it. And uh, every ticket comes with a free glass of wine. So there. <laughs> Carrying on the Dana Steele tradition. <laughs> yes, yes. So another thing I've always been curious to ask you about is uh, you've got a son who's very active in theater and, and you and Wonder Husband have become quite active investors as well. Turning the tables. What's it like to watch someone you so adore step out onto that stage? You know, we, we astronauts have the experience of it's, it's a whole lot easier to be in the rocket than watching even a good friend, much less a loved one, be riding that bomb. So, yeah, well, Dak is I'm, actually behind the scenes. He's a, he's a stage manager, and he just found out that he's not going back to the production he was with prior to the pandemic. You know, they kind of let him on for a year. So I know the heartache that's in showbiz. But most businesses, there's no loyalty anymore like there used to be when our parents would stay with the same company for 30 or 40 years. You know, my he and I started butting heads. He basically woke up one morning when he was 12 years old and my wonderful firstborn best child, love of my life, woke up a dick. And he, he was one for the next 12 years. And it's probably because we're so much alike. And we just, and even though he came home at the beginning of the pandemic and we butted heads really for the first eight weeks while we found our footing and he got over his depression and realized this is going to be a long, we're in this for the long haul. And he just went back to New York last week and he and I cried at the airport. We have become such good friends. And to see, I'm not as worried about him now in the world of theater because I've seen what a fantastic young man we raised and he's smart and damn, he can negotiate. Boy, he, he got a lot of stuff from me the last year. <laughs> like crazy. Um, he's going to be just fine. But yeah, I mean, my heart ached for him last week when he found out he was not, or two weeks ago, I guess it was when he found out he was not going back to this particular show. I'm 61. I can look back and go, everything happens for a reason. Thank God I had that bad breakup. I never would have met your dad. But at 25, it's hard to tell somebody, oh, this is great. You're going to look back. This is going to be a fabulous lesson. You know, it's something when he's 50, he'll look back and go, okay, yeah, I did learn something from that. But I have to step back and, you know, mommy can't be sending his resume to everybody unless he wants me to. And yes, I have an incredible contact, contact list of people in theater, lead producers, production companies, general managers, people who would be happy to at least take a look at his resume. But he's a grown man and I, mommy can't send his resume around unless he asks for an official introduction. So I'm kind of just sitting on my hands right now waiting <laughs> for him to, because I am the queen of networking. Honey, I can get your resume out to, you know, a hundred people right now. Do you want to be on the road? Do you want to be in New York? Do you want to be on the West End of London? What do you want, dude? But he knows, he knows what we do. He knows what we produce. I'm glad you asked that though, because I'm, I'm very close to, we've had some great success in theater. We have come from away worldwide and we have Tina the Musical on Broadway. And we're very proud to announce we now have Cinderella with Andrew Lloyd Webber on the West End in London, which is going to be fantastic. But we've always been investors. And I think that's my next step out is I've been asked to join a lead producer in New York and become an actual producer, which means you go out and ask people for money. And that's the one thing I learned running for Congress. I could never ask for money. I couldn't even ask for my allowance. I would just break out in hives. I can ask anybody for money now. <laughs> when you <laughs> run for Congress, you'll learn. So I'm going to try my hand at actually producing and helping raise money for some productions. And we'll see. Yeah. So what's your prognosis for Broadway coming back and the lights coming back on? 
Bus well, and the know, business model post-pandemic, because it's not going to be pre-pandemic. Well, if we can get everybody vaccinated, you know, they just had a concert for 50,000 people a few days ago in New Zealand. If we would all just, you know, wear a mask and get a vaccine, uh, we could be back doing that kind of stuff again. Australia, our come from away in Melbourne, opened up again in February, and we've been playing to sold out crowds in Australia. I believe we're getting ready to open in Sydney. Uh, we've got a company in Norway that's playing to sold out crowds. You need London to send me to it. your Norway. <laughs> I know. Send I want to your Norway place so I can talk to them. <laughs> yeah, well, they're doing it in Norwegian. Just. Yes. They've announced July 22nd for the West End, uh, July 26th for Cinderella on the West End. I don't know because, you know, the variants are everything's kind of raging right now in the UK. So we're waiting. And then what we're hearing, and don't hold me to this, but what we're hearing is, you know, rehearsals in August, maybe some soft openings in September on Broadway, and the tours picking up again in October. They're hoping that, you know, enough people will be vaccinated by then that you won't have to necessarily leave empty seats, but people will have to continue wearing their mask, which will be a weird muffled Muffled you know, laughter, yes. Yeah, yeah, but so we'll we'll see. In the meantime, our, our cast and crew for Come From Away Broadway, I think they're right in the middle of it right now. They're filming some law. They've been in quarantine for two weeks, and they're filming, doing the performance live on their stage of Broadway, filming it for Netflix, and that'll come out in September on Netflix. I think it's Netflix, so, so we'll see. You know, and as a speaker, I'm hearing from meeting planners everybody's just chomping at the bit they're they're starting to plan conferences and meetings and things like that and they expect that industry to just explode once we get to maybe a little bit more of a, a herd immunity that people are going to have to get a vaccine our economy depends on people wearing a mask and getting the vaccine it really does it really does. So I'll get off my soapbox now. Get you there. <laughs> oh, you're great on a soapbox. Covered your stepping in out of school and into radio and into retail and into marketing and into writing and and walking through Alzheimer's with your mother uh, and then turning it into a wonderful book that can help so many people who are going to have to face that march themselves. And now you're going to step even further into Broadway. Yeah, I'm going to be a producer and an actress at the same time. Those are the two scariest things that I never really succeeded at. One is acting, even though this is kind of different. It's my life story or my story with mom. And the other one was never being able to ask for money, a raise, a salary, anything. And so I'm going to take the two things. You know, I hadn't even thought about that now that you've said that. I'm taking the two things that I've never really succeed Although I've raised a million dollars for Congress, but I'm going to take those two things and really go, I'm going to step out again. I think that's, it keeps your brain functioning and you meet so many people and you have so many experiences. And I remember my, the middle son, the one I butted heads with, used to butt heads with, said to me one day, would you please stop talking to strangers everywhere we go? I grabbed him by the lapel and had him up against the wall at an airport. And I was like, dude. Everything and every adventure you have ever gotten to do in your life is because I spoke to a stranger somewhere that became a friend. So, <laughs> you know, mama's not going to stop. <laughs> no, no. So just, you know, so, uh, yeah, I, I think I thrive on it now. It's kind of in a scary adrenaline to just I've tried everything I ever wanted to try. I've done everything I've ever wanted to do, except be on stage. I think I played a grasshopper in Aesop's Fallibles in college, but that doesn't count. Uh, you know, be on stage and be a producer. I'm going to have to raise money for the first thing I'm going to really produce is my own show. So, because I'm going to have to raise funds for that. And then we hope to take it on the road. So, it goes back to what you and I were saying about how women will, I can't do that till I know more. Well, you know what? I'm just going to do it. Hi, my name is Dana Steele. I'm a producer. What are you producing? It's a play called The Woman in the Mirror. Well, what does that mean? It means I need $25,000. Would you like to invest? <laughs> it's like, yeah. And then people, people say, 
no or tell me more yep. and then you go from there and the whole time I'm thinking okay did they believe me now and now I don't care but I would have you know 10 years I would have gone did they believe me did that sound convincing but I, I finally began to realize that people are like oh that is so cool for the most part people even strangers want you to be they believe you they want you to succeed when you walk on stage everybody in that audience or when you walk into a conference room to give a presentation to your boss in the c-suite or whatever you're terrified everybody's judging you and i learned finally that everybody in the audience or everybody in the boardroom is terrified it's just going to be another powerpoint and if you could just be yourself and be passionate about what it is you do you will be ahead of 99 percent of others and just show your passion show what it is you do be yourself smile people are just going please god don't be boring that's all people are thinking they're not worried you're gonna they, they don't think you're stupid they don't think they just everybody in the audience is thinking the same thing from the ceo to the janitor please god don't be boring you know the other bit of wisdom that's in that story you just just told is while you're sure everyone out there is watching critiquing judging you Everyone out there is mainly preoccupied with themselves. Yeah, what's for lunch? Is this going to be a good evening? I got dragged to the theater. I didn't want to be here. Am I gonna, is it going to be horrible? Dana Steele comes out on stage. Oh, please make this something worthwhile. So they're not actually so hyper-focused on you. That's, that's the picture you're painting on that bubble inside your head that will pop as soon as you touch it. Every single person you talk to whether you're ordering coffee at Starbucks or talking to 5,000 people at a conference in Orlando, every single person is thinking the same three things. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? And what's in it for me? <laughs> if you can figure out how to give these people something that's about them, you know, for the barista, it's just give them a smile and a tip. That's all they want, you know, and for the audience, just Bring them some little tidbits of joy that works for you or whatever. Be passionate about whatever it is you're up there talking about. But everybody's, that's all everybody's thinking about is what's in it for me? What's for lunch? I wonder where she got that shirt. It's cold in here. It's hot. And just remember, they're all thinking about themselves. Yep. They're yep. not naked. They're just thinking about themselves. <laughs> that whole naked, that whole the audience is naked. I'm like, oh no, that's gross. I, I can't. No, I don't want to talk to people. That doesn't, doesn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dana, there's no doubt that you will keep stepping on and into and through so many things. And uh, a message that I hear coming through all this is, this is this is all a little bit like going to the gym. You know, reps help. You know, the muscle gets built and gets stronger and better with every little rep that you give it. And, and you make yourself go to the gym or you make yourself go walk that mile every day or you make yourself eat less carbs, make yourself be successful. Why not just step out? Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.